0: at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August 21st, 2015. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Chris Derriman discusses humans' unique predatory behaviors, and Katherine Matisik is here with some of our latest online news stories.
1: Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aas.org.
0: Now we have Katherine Matisik. She's here to talk about some recent online news stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on talking in whistles. There's written English and there's spoken English. There's even signed English. But sadly, we don't have whistled English. There is, however, whistled Turkish. What exactly is a whistled language, Catherine?
2: A whistled language is just what it sounds like, Sarah. A way of communicating by using whistles. But these aren't just any whistles. The speakers of kushteli have developed a complex method of whistling that mimics the words, the grammar, and even the sounds of spoken Turkish. So if you had someone say in Turkish, the black sea is beautiful, if they were whistling, it would sound like this. (laughs) Now I don't speak Turkish, but I have it on good authority that the sounds you just heard are very similar to those in the original spoken language. For example, the Turkish word for beautiful is good which you can almost hear in the upward lilt of the last part of the recording. But the discovery we're going to talk
0: about right now is not the existence of this kind of amazing whistled form of language. It's about how the brain processes these sounds. The researchers in this study used a tweak on a standard way of exploring language processing in the brain. What's
2: the standard here? So the standard experiment researchers use to figure out what side of the brain processes sound is actually pretty simple. They use headphones to pipe two different but similar sounding syllables into each ear. Something like ba in the right ear, but da in the left ear. Most people report hearing only the sound coming in through their right ear. That's because this is the signal that is processed first on the left side of the brain, home to most of our language processing capabilities. There's a lag on the sound coming in through the left ear because it ping-pongs around the brain before it reaches the language processing center.
0: And how were the results different when they presented whistled Turkish in the ears of its small number of speakers?
2: Uh, You're right about the small number of speakers, Sarah. I think there are only about 10,000 of them left today. But getting back to your question, when researchers performed the same experiment using whistled Turkish, they got some surprising results. Whistlers reported hearing the sound from one ear or the other with roughly equal frequency. That means that some of the sound is probably being processed on the right side of the brain, which deals with things like melody and tones.
0: If the brain does process whistled language signals differently,
2: with more, quote, symmetry, what does that mean? It means that people who lose their ability to speak after a stroke may be able to process some types of language on the right side of their brain. For example, people who have had a stroke that affects the left side of their brain can sometimes learn to sing their words. Researchers aren't exactly sure how this is working uh, with the Turkish whistlers. But they say that it holds promise for future research.
0: Going back to how smallest population of people there are that speak Whistle Turkish, I mean, it seems really useful. They can project their voices and their words much further. Why do researchers think it's going away?
2: Well, so nobody's exactly sure when the language developed, but it probably started between 400 and 500 years ago to carry sounds across long distances. Now, with things like cell phone communication, that is becoming less and less necessary. But one thing that the researchers brought up is that, you know, perhaps even more importantly, if you want to gossip with some of your friends, doing it over cell phone is probably a lot better than whistling it to the entire village.
0: Next up, we have a story on mass killing in the Neolithic. About 7,500 years ago, Neolithic farmers began to till the soil in Europe. But were they peaceful tillers of the soil? Researchers
2: had thought so. Why this emphasis on peace, Catherine? That's a very good question, Sarah. I think what a lot of it probably boils down to is lack of evidence for the kind of violence that we see here. But it's long been thought that early agriculturalists, you know, in order to coexist with their neighbors, would have to live in a peaceful society that was anchored by trade. It's a type of society that doesn't really reward violent or anti Social behavior. So, no war, no Holocausts, that kind of thing. Supposedly.
0: This new finding seems to be a big
2: push in the other direction, though, the deadly massacre direction. What did they find? So, researchers found the bones of 26 people in a mass grave near Frankfurt, Germany. When they cleaned and reconstructed the bones, they found that many of the skulls had been violently cracked, and more than half of the shin bones had been broken, all in the exact same place. And when do these bones date to? They date to about
0: 7,000 years ago. You said broken shin bones, right? Do the researchers assign any meaning to these injuries?
2: Well, as you can guess, it's hard to know the real answer without going back in time to talk to these people. But their best guess is that this was an all-out massacre of an entire village. Not only were the bones systematically broken, but the bodies were dumped into a pit, instead of buried with the usual ceremony. Finally, there were lots of children among the dead. Almost half of them were under the age of six. As to the shin bones, scientists aren't so sure. Some say that it might have been an early form of torture— But others say that's unlikely and think that the killers were destroying the bodies of the victims so that their ghosts would not take revenge. Wow. Are there any clues as to why these people were killed? There aren't many clues, but researchers suspect the killers were members of a neighboring village or tribe. The grave site sits close to a border between two Neolithic groups that had distinct trading networks, making them possible enemies. With one group gone, their precious fields would have been up for grabs.
0: Lastly, we have a story on building gas giants. This is big news in planet building circles. It appears that researchers have solved the too-many-giants problem. Catherine,
2: what can you tell us about this long-standing question? The too-many-giants problem is a fun one, but not for planetary scientists who are trying to solve it. In a nutshell, they need to figure out how the early solar system, which was nothing but a whirling disk of gas and dust, created the planets. It's been very difficult to figure out how gas giants like Saturn and Jupiter formed, because they would have had to suck up all their gas quickly before the sun got to it. On top of that, figuring out how they could get large cores with enough gravity to pool in the gas has proven very difficult to model. It's called the too-many-giants problem because other models predicted that anywhere from a dozen to several hundred of these planets should have formed. And what's different about this new model here? The researchers in this case set out to kill the old model. But, as so often happens, they ended up making it stronger instead. The old model focused on the way dust and small pebbles accrete into larger and larger masses to form planetary cores. The problem was that this method would have quickly created hundreds of cores, and we don't see any of those planets today. But the team working on this new model found that by tuning it so the pebble formation process took a little bit longer, there was more time for the large planetary embryos to interact with each other gravitationally, All but the biggest got kicked outside of the plane of the solar system, allowing the few that remained to mop up remaining pebbles and become the cores of today's gas giants. This model correctly predicts the number of gas giants and their distance from the sun.
0: What about other solar systems with exoplanets surrounding them? Would this model be able to make predictions about their configurations?
2: It might be true for some exoplanets, but others are so big and sit so far away from their home stars that there may be other mechanisms at play here. One of those is called the gravitational instability model, in which researchers propose that especially cool and massive protoplanetary disks can develop ripples like oceans that coalesce into gas giants, with or without their rocky cores.
0: This new model seems to explain how our
2: local gas giants formed. But what about rocky planets like Earth? That's the next object of this group's study. Rocky planets are thought to have formed much more slowly than the gas giants, which, combined with the planets' shorter orbits around the sun, makes the modeling effort a lot more difficult. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Catherine? We have a story on skydiving spiders in South America and also a story about the world's first flowering plants. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story on new EPA rules on methane leaks and a story on how U.S. biomedical research on chimpanzees may be coming to an end. So be sure to check those out on the site. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. Catherine Matisik
0: is an online editor for our daily news site, I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org.
3: It's no secret that humans have been one of the most successful predators on the planet. And today, we continue to exploit wild animals with tools and sophistication that allow us to outcompete other predators and even drive prey populations to extinction, something that's rare in non-human predator-prey dynamics. In this week's issue, Chris Daramont and his team investigate how human predatory behavior sets us apart from all other predators. I'm Suzanne Bard.
1: The idea for this study came actually quite a long time ago on an offshore island about 120 kilometers off the coast of Canada. There, Tom Reimkin, the senior author on this paper, was studying the fate of three-spined stickleback fish subject to predation by about 20, 22 predators, both diving birds and larger fish. And what he observed is that overwhelmingly these little sticklebacks die as juveniles, die by the mouths of predators and only very rarely on the order of 2 to 5% are adults taken by these non-human predators and just a few kilometers away another predator human beings were taking 50, 60, 70, 80% of herring and salmon populations and that is where the idea was born to compare human predators with non-human predators
3: Chris how do you define hunting and fishing in your paper
1: There's a great scope Wildlife management, commercial fisheries, bushmeat or tropical wild meat harvests and so on. But to us, especially as ecologists, this is predation. We may dress it up with different adjectives or put it in different scholarly domains, but this is fundamentally
3: Chris, how do we differ from other predators?
1: Well, we've diverged from non-human predators in some pretty extreme ways millennia ago. Several processes allowed us to become dominant predators. Our symbioses with dogs that allowed us to be efficient hunters. Killing technology that allowed us to avoid face-to-face contact with prey, which can be dangerous. The development of projectile weapons was very important. Yeah. <laughs> And this went hand in hand, this meat consumption with population growth that sort of sets in motion this positive feedback loop in which, as a predator, we expand geographically and we encountered naive prey with no evolutionary experience with human beings here in North America. As populations became sedentary, we developed agriculture and aquaculture, which subsidized us as predators. So even Even if prey were declining, our populations weren't. So all these things and more conspired to make us the dominant predator we are today
3: so it sounds like there have been plenty of studies of predator prey dynamics in the past involving humans what sets your study apart
1: well I think our study is unique because we're doing a fundamental reevaluation of humans as natural predators we're doing some basic comparative natural history and asking how do we differ from non-human predators we're revealing what the implications are of our extreme diversity divergence as predators, and identifying some ways in which some conservation implications might be addressed by fisheries and wildlife managers. Now, our work focused on data from primarily the 1990s onward and spanned every continent except Antarctica and every ocean. And our focus specifically was on terrestrial mammals as prey and marine fishes as prey. But it ran the whole gamut from harvests of small nocturnal mammals deep within the Neotropics to Atlantic bluefin tuna on the high seas. In total, we had over 2200 estimates of predation, more than half of which came from human predation, harvest by fishers or hunters from every continent.
3: What did you actually quantify in your study, Chris? What
1: we quantified is the annual finite exploitation rate and all that really means is how much of a population do humans take or do non-humans take?
3: From your analysis, what are some of the most notable ways in which humans differ from other animals in their predatory behavior?
1: There were several findings that jumped out at us and indeed surprised us. And the first one was the magnitude of the difference in the exploitation rates that humans, especially fisheries, extract from the natural world compared to non-human predators, whereas natural predators in the oceans take about one percent of adult biomass in their prey populations. The same human predator, the fishery, takes about 14% of adult annual biomass. So whereas natural predators think wolves or lions or large predatory fish, for example, they focus their predation on the newly born, we as humans focus almost exclusively on large reproductive aged adults think trophy hunting or even food hunting very rarely do we target the juveniles. That's actually quite rare in the natural world. The second result that really popped out for us was humanity's really unique behavior in turning large carnivores into prey. So what we found really surprised us and that was the rate at which humans kill large carnivores was not only higher than the rate at which we kill herbivores but about nine times higher than the rate at which large carnivores kill one another. So our impacts are extreme and very different compared with non-human predators.
3: Right, because some of these carnivores probably don't even have natural predators.
1: That's right. They kill each other in interspecific competition. But in almost all cases, human beings kill large carnivores at far higher rates than do other carnivores. And this is really troubling because often large carnivores don't have the evolutionary adaptations to be resilient in the face of such high mortality.
3: And what's the effect on the food web of killing carnivores at such high rates rather than herbivores, for instance?
1: Well, there can be a great many consequences. First and foremost, if we lose large carnivores, which has happened in many parts of North America, Europe, and beyond, the herbivores, freed from control, can go on to eat themselves out of house and home, so to speak, erupt into large populations that rob resources from other organisms, from invertebrates to songbirds words. The other thing that could happen is that the middle-sized carnivores can erupt also and cause negative effects on smaller prey. Some very interesting work that's been emerging lately is coming to understand our failure in providing some of the same ecosystem services that predators do. Predators, as we're learning, can influence very positive ways the frequency of disease in wildlife population, even the frequency of wild. So it's unlikely that human hunters can ever replace the ecological role of large carnivores that we persecute at such high rates.
3: And you also mentioned the high rate of human predation on adults in a population. It seems like if you're hunting for food, killing adults will usually get you the most calories. But what role does culture play when hunting is done more for sport? Seems like in some cultures, at least, there's kind of an honor code to go after the largest and strongest adult. But don't most non-human predators target a young or sick individual because they're easier to catch?
1: Yep, there certainly is good evidence that human hunters are drawn to not only killing adults, large trophy specimens within wildlife populations, but as Dr. Palmer showed us, he saw the lion case, they're very much interested in displaying those carcasses. And there are probably some contemporary forces that maintain that behavior, be it social media, opportunities to share your accomplishment far afield, but probably there are some deeper evolutionary reasons why men are drawn to this sort of behavior in our ancestral environments when men were commonly in competition with one another. Large and ideally dangerous animals served a purpose of displaying that you had vigor and strength and you are likely not the man to compete with in your social group. So these are all speculations, but nonetheless relevant in today's world and given the interest in Cecil the lion.
3: Right. Now, some people argue that the permits they give out for big game hunting actually help the animals in Africa because people who go trophy hunting put a lot of money into, say, conserving these animals. Do you know anything about the economics of that?
1: What has been shown is not a lot of the money does indeed trickle down to local people that are in theory and perhaps in practice inspired to protect the carnivores that are subject to this economic activity. I personally don't like the two polarized options that if we don't hunt them, they'll disappear or we hunt rare animals because they fetch greater economic price tags and thereby we will inspire local people to take care of these animals. I think there are options in between. There are plenty of examples of extracting revenue from wild animals, particularly rare ones through non-consumptive means, and what I mean by that, of course, is ecotourism with a camera.
3: That's a really good point. And it seems like killing adults would really change the dynamics of who is left in a population and could even change the evolutionary trajectory of a population or species.
1: That's right. There are lots of implications of targeting adults and not killing the juveniles as do non-human predators. And some of those implications are evolutionary. And the classic example is the horn size of the bighorn sheep. But there's lots of evidence also in the marine world that when we remove large individuals, those fastest growing individuals in body size or horn size, what's left to breed are individuals with genes that say, I'm going to grow slower. I'm going to grow to be a smaller size. And this is happening in many systems across the world and it's referred to as harvest selection these so-called undesirable changes in prey that are, in many cases, a direct result of humanity's preference, economic and cultural, for large individuals.
3: In your paper, you mentioned the concept of humans as super predators. That's right. Yeah. So what do you mean by that?
1: Well, despite it being a really pithy, compelling little term, we also defend it in a scholarly way. And number one, given our extraordinarily high exploitation rates on other predators, we are a super predator. In our view, we're the world's only real apex predator, because only very rarely do we get preyed on by other predators. And in general, just are for sure the largest dietary breadth of any predator. The rates at which we extract those prey, especially in their adult forms, deserves this superlative.
3: Chris, what would have to happen vis-a-vis human behavior to make hunting and fishing more sustainable?
1: That's a million-dollar question. Biologists are very good at identifying problems and generally very poor at identifying solutions. And in a general way, we've recommended its idea of Dr. Reimkens, and that is to transform hunting and fishing so that they more closely mimic the behavior of non-human predators. And this can be driven by data showing that these non-human predators seldom take more than 5% of adults in a prey population and focus their effort on juveniles. In our view, they are the ultimate long-term models of sustainability. And so we can look to nature in designing how we could do things better as harvesters on the ocean or hunters on land. Now, that's a lot easier said than done. But there are some notable examples in which we do behave like non-human predators. And a prime example of that is much of the herring fishing in coastal Western North America, particularly in Canada.
3: Thanks so much for speaking with me, Chris.
1: You bet. A pleasure.
3: Chris Daramont and his colleagues write about humans as global super predators this week in science. And
0: that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's aaasorg join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.